Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 29 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and moderator of today's program. It's my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker. Ibu Patel is founder and executive director of the Interfaith Youth Corps, a Chicago-based nonprofit committed to building mutual respect and understanding among young people from diverse faith traditions. He holds a doctorate in the sociology of religion from Oxford University, where he studied as a Rhodes Scholar. He's the author of the book, Acts of Faith, the story of his own journey of faith, and he writes the blog, The Faith Divide, for the Washington Post. Dr. Patel serves on the Religious Advisory Committee of the Council on Foreign Relations, on the National Committee of the Aga Khan Foundation, and the National Board of the YMCA. He has been named by Harvard's Kennedy School Review as one of five future policy leaders to watch, and he was recently appointed by President Barack Obama to the White House Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Initiatives. His efforts to engage young people from diverse religious traditions in collaborative public service has earned him wide recognition as a leading voice on religious pluralism and interfaith cooperation. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Ibu Patel. So I ran into Susan on the way in, and she said, Ibu, we've been trying to get you here to the Twin Cities for a while. Uh, we're so glad you finally came. And I said, well, if those earlier invitations hadn't invited me for March, which I know enough about Minnesota to know that reads 10 feet of snow, <laughs> I would have come a couple years ago. And I'm so delighted to be here now. And actually, the uh, kind gentleman who, who ushered me in said, yes, we, uh, we folks in the Twin Cities, we try to escape during the winter also. I said, yes, but you escape upstate where there's 20 feet of snow. <laughs> so we, we Chicagoans stand in admiration of the hardiness of uh, the stock here. Um, I love coming to the Twin Cities. And, and one of the reasons is, as my friend uh, and colleague, Becca Hartman, who uh, took a later flight than I did yesterday, she had an enriching and mutually enlightening conversation about interfaith cooperation with her cab driver on the way in to the city. And I, I love that as an image of what a city can and should be, where all sectors of the society, all people are involved in how can my identity contribute to the common good here? How can I be part of building bridges between different backgrounds? And so. Uh, Becca was particularly excited that there was a trainee in that cab, and the cab driver and Becca collectively trained that trainee to not only be uh, a better driver, but to engage their fares in conversations about interfaith cooperation into the city of Minneapolis from the airport. So many good things happening here in lots and lots of places. I want to take you to a different city for a moment. I'm going to take you to Jersey City, tell you a story about what's happening there. So Jersey City happens to have one of the largest concentrations of Egyptian immigrants to America, about half Muslim and about half Christian. And for the past generation or so, these, this Egyptian community has gotten along across religious lines, which is a great American story, especially given the sometimes tense relations between the Christian and Muslim communities back in Egypt. Something terrible happened four or five years ago in Jersey City. The execution-style murder of an Egyptian Christian family. Four people tied up, throat slit, including an eight-year-old child in their home. As a result of this, these two communities split apart, no longer sharing shisha pipes in uh, Egyptian cafes, no longer working together as harmoniously in businesses, high school students no longer sitting together at the local high school at lunch tables. I looked at this story and I thought to myself, this is 
an illustration of what the sociologist and public policy expert Robert Putnam talks about in his recent study on diversity and social cohesion. Putnam believes diversity is a good thing and also believes social cohesion is a good thing. But in a recent study, he finds them fascinatingly inversely correlated. He doesn't particularly like this conclusion, but as a social scientist, he has to go where the findings take him. And so he says, what he, what he discovers is that in neighborhoods, in cities, in communities, where there are more people from more different ethnic and religious backgrounds, there's less trust, there's less volunteerism, there's less, there's lower rates of voting, unless that diversity is engaged positively, directly, proactively. That's the challenge that Professor Putnam lays before in America in the early 21st century. Will we, the most religiously diverse society in human history, the most religiously devout society in the West, be able to engage our diversity so that it becomes what Putnam's Harvard colleague calls pluralism? which is not the simple fact of people from different backgrounds living in close quarters in cities like Minneapolis and St. Paul, but the positive relations between those communities, the respect for identity, the relationships, the commitment to the common good. I looked at the Jersey City story through Robert Putnam's lens, and one of the questions I was asking was, I don't think that it's simply natural for a Christian and a Muslim community to split apart when a moment of crisis occurs. I wanted to know what happened, what was the moving force in that community that caused that split? And sure enough, buried in the 13th or 14th or 15th paragraph in that New York Times article, I found it. There was a gentleman who stood up after that execution style murder and said from the footsteps of his church, this looks like something that Muslims would do. What he did was defined reality for a community. He was a leader in the framework of the clash of civilizations. Nobody knew at that time whether a Muslim had actually committed the murder. Nobody knew at that time whether if it was a Muslim, it was done in the quote unquote name of Islam. But the first person who defined reality for Jersey City after that shock chose to tell a story of Christians and Muslims in perpetual and inherent conflict. That's what caused the rift. I thought to myself, what if a different type of leader had emerged in that situation? What if instead of somebody standing up and saying, this looks like something that Muslims would do, somebody stood up and said, we as the citizens of Jersey City stand tall and proud and together as a community of pluralism against whatever extremists who might violate that ethic. Whoever did this is no citizen of Jersey City. What I would like to focus this talk on is the importance of training and motivating a layer of a society who has the framework, the knowledge base, and the skill set to build those bridges. And to recognize that we are not dealing on neutral terrain when it comes to issues of how you bring a diverse civic fabric together, there are plenty of leaders out there who are interested in telling the story of the clash of civilizations. Plenty of leaders who are committed to raising barriers between communities, even some leaders who are committed to building bombs that destroy other communities. I am interested in the opportunity to raise up a layer of people who are committed to building bridges between those communities and recognizing that this is the American challenge in the 21st century, whether we have the ability and the commitment to build bridges between diversity that helps 
articulate and move us towards the common good. I want to offer a three-part paradigm for what I think that bridge building looks like. The first is a framework. The second is a knowledge base. And the third is a skill set. This is what I think it means to be an interfaith bridge builder in the most religiously diverse society in human history, the most religiously devout society in the West, at a moment of global religious conflict. Let's take up the first, what it means to have an interfaith framework. Very simply, it means looking at the world dramatically differently. When the New York Times says that it's Christians and Hindus fighting in Orissa, a state in India, I read that and I say, mm, wrong framework. It's not Christians and Hindus fighting in Orissa. It's pluralists and extremists in Orissa. There are a group of people who are Muslim and Christian and Hindu and secular and Buddhist and Jewish, and they believe in a society where people of all backgrounds live in equal dignity and mutual loyalty. They're on one side of the line. And there are a group of people whose backgrounds are Muslim or Jewish or Hindu or Christian, and they seek to dominate and have everybody else suffocate, and they're on the other side of the line. The first thing an interfaith leader has is the framework of pluralism versus extremism and the ability to articulate that different framework in a world too convinced of the clash of civilizations. Let me give you what I think is one of the leading examples of somebody who has done this in the last five years. My friend and yours, Minnesota's own Keith Ellison. When Keith Ellison, that's right. When Keith Ellison was elected to Congress, as I'm sure this audience knows, there were some folks in America who raised the red flag about the first Muslim who would go to Capitol Hill, particularly when Representative Ellison exercised his constitutional right to take his oath of office on the Holy Quran. There's a representative in Virginia named Virgil Good who said that if we allow Keith Ellison to take his oath of office on the Quran, it will open up the gates of America to hordes of Muslim immigrants who will rush to Capitol Hill demanding Qurans in places in Congress. Mr. Ellison calmly reminded his congressional colleague, Mr. Good, that actually he was a historic American and his ancestors had probably been in this country as an African-American for generations longer than Mr. Good's, and that he would like to share some things about Muslims and Islam with him once they took their seats in Congress together. On the other side of the country, in California, a writer named Dennis Prager wrote uh, in a vociferous column that America decides the holy book that you take your oath of office on, and America has decided that it's the Bible. Virgil Good, Dennis Prager, and others were telling the story of America as an exclusively Christian country that had no room for a newly elected Muslim congressperson. It was a clash of civilization story that put America, the narrative of America, at the center. Well, Keith Ellison took his oath of office on the Holy Quran, and he, what he chose to do was go across the street to the Library of Congress and the Rare Books Collection and request the Quran once reverently owned by Thomas Jefferson. And what that did was change the framework, alter the narrative of the kind of country that America is. Ellison was telling Americans and the world that the founding fathers of this nation believed in a country of religious pluralism. That even as early as the 18th century, people like Jefferson and Madison and Washington and Franklin and the personal testimonies of these men bear this out, viewed America as a place where people from the four corners of the earth could come and build a new country. Keith Ellison was an interfaith leader because he saw the world through a different framework, and he had the ability to articulate that framework even in the teeth of a vehement clash of civilization story. Part one of being an interfaith leader. 
Part two of being an interfaith leader is having a knowledge base about the different religions of the world and how they speak to interfaith cooperation. One of the things that strikes me about people's knowledge of Islam, uh, and this occurs in audiences that I speak to across the nation and increasingly the world, is people can quote chapter and verse on the very small parts of the Holy Quran which speak negatively about other people. And I think to myself, this is the knowledge base that too much of the world has about Islam. They watch the heinous, horrible, and anti-Islamic violence perpetrated by the Al-Qaeda movements of the world, and they read that perverse behavior into certain parts of the Holy Quran, and they come up with a knowledge base of the religion that is violent. I think an interfaith leader has to have a different kind of knowledge base. They need to know the dimensions of their own faith and other faiths that speak to interfaith cooperation. I want to tell you some of the dimensions of my faith, the faith of Islam, which does precisely that. And I hope that by sharing some of this scripture and telling you some of these stories, you think to yourselves, whether you're Jewish or Christian or Buddhist or Baha'i or Hindu or a secular humanist, about the parts of your own tradition that resonate with this. What's the scripture in Christianity that's similar to this interfaith cooperation scripture in Islam? What are the stories in Judaism that resonate with these stories that I will relate in Islam? Let's begin with one of my favorite passages from the Holy Quran in Surah 49, where God tells us, he made us different nations and tribes that we may come to know one another. This actually is, I believe, a dominant theme throughout the Holy Quran and throughout Muslim history and tradition. The idea that God created us deliberately diverse. There are other passages which say things like, God created humanity from a single, from a, a, a single being, but they will not cease to be diverse. God gave different communities their own ways and laws. We are made to be diverse and made to have relationships with each other. There's a beautiful line in the Quran which says of the Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of God be upon him, that he was sent to be nothing but a special mercy upon all the worlds. Not just a special mercy upon the Arabs of seventh century Western Hejaz. Not simply a mercy upon the one-fifth of humanity that's Muslim but a special mercy upon all the worlds. And as Muslims, we follow first and foremost in the footsteps of our holy prophet, I believe aspiring to be a special mercy upon the many diverse communities that God created. There's a wonderful story in Islam that I want to tell at some length. When the, the prophet Muhammad, before he was explicitly chosen as God's messenger, would take a month every year away from the city of Mecca, and he would go to a cave on Mount Hira, and he would fast, and he would pray, and he would give alms to the poor. And one night in his 40th year, during that holy month of Ramadan, the prophet was praying in the mouth of this cave. He felt a force envelop him and he heard the word Ikra. A second time, the force enveloped him, and again he heard the word Ikra, and he didn't know what was happening to him. He said to this force, I am not a reciter. Ikra in Arabic means recite. And a third time, the force enveloped him, and this time, Muhammad felt words pouring from his mouth. Recite in the name of your Lord who created created humankind from a single clot of blood. There are some traditions within the history of Islam that say that Muhammad was scared at this point, didn't know quite what had happened to him. He went back to the person that he trusted most in his life, perhaps respected most, his wife. And he said to Khadija, this is what happened to me, but I don't know what it means. And Khadija said, what I know is that you are too righteous of a person 
for God to let something bad happen to you. So I think something spe very special has occurred, but I don't know exactly what it is. Let us go to see my family member, Waraka. Waraka is a man learned in the scriptures. What does it mean to be learned in the scriptures in the seventh century in the western part of Saudi Arabia? It means that Waraka was a Christian. Khadija brought her husband Muhammad before her relative Waraka. They explained what had happened. Waraka looked into the prophet's eyes, saw there a shining light, what Arabs, Muslims call nur, the light of God, kissed the prophet on the forehead and said, verily, the prophet of your people has arrived. The first person to recognize that God had chosen Muhammad as the Muslim prophet was a Christian. Incidentally, a Christian who, according to the sources we have, never converted to Islam, meaning he stayed rooted in his own tradition while he had deep respect for this leader of another tradition. I wish these were the stories that were told about Islam in churches and synagogues, on CNN and on Fox News, that this was the knowledge base that we had about the scripture and, and history of a 1,400-year-old tradition that accounts for one-fifth of humankind, those dimensions of this faith which speak to interfaith cooperation. And the wonderful thing about sharing these stories is that I imagine that each of you is thinking, oh, there's a wonderful story in Christianity, the story of the Good Samaritan, which speaks about how a person from one community helped a person from another community. That's a story of interfaith cooperation. There's a wonderful line in the work of the Rabbi Hillel, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I am only for myself, what am I? That speaks to interfaith cooperation. Wonderful scriptures, heroes within Hinduism, Buddhism, the Baha'i faith, the Sikh faith within secular humanism. We need to build a knowledge base of such things so that not only do we have a framework of what it looks like to build pluralism, but we have a knowledge base behind that framework third dimension of what it means to be an interfaith leader. Having a skill set. The ability to actually make that framework and knowledge base real in the world. One of my favorite scholars of religion, Wilford Cantwell Smith, famously said, it's not a problem between Islam and Judaism. Those books get along just fine in my library. It's a problem between Muslims and Jews. So what that means is there are plenty of people in the world who actually know about how dimensions of Islam and dimensions of Judaism cohere, are mutually enriching, but not enough people in the world who have the skill set to bring together Muslims and Jews, Christians and Buddhists, secularists and believers in ways that build the common good. How do we train, inspire, and mobilize that layer of people? People who can go from church to synagogue to mosque to temple and bring folks together. People who can create common projects for those people to do. People who can facilitate a dialogue that helps those people articulate the Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, Christian dimensions of their faith which inspire them to serve others. I'll tell you what I think is a place that knows how to do this which is right here in the Twin Cities. Last night I had uh, the honor of spending time with the Reverend Peg Chamberlain, who is um, leader in the Minnesota Council of Churches and the newly elected chair of the National Council of Churches. And we drove across the bridge in these cities that is both tragic and triumphant. And she told me the story of how the different faith communities in the Twin Cities came together to offer solace, to offer support to those who suffered in that bridge collapse. 
about the service at St. Mark's Episcopal Church where hundreds and hundreds of Minnesotans from different faiths gathered to show their multi-faith solidarity in the face of that tragedy. And how you had international reporters from all over the world there saying, how long did it take you to put this together? And Reverend Chamberlain told me, well, in some ways three days, and in some ways 10 years. We've been building these bridges, we've been developing these relationships, we've been applying the skill set of being interfaith leaders for a good long time in the Twin Cities. Here's a beautiful image in the work of Italo Calvino about what it means to build a bridge. It's a work called Invisible Cities. And the motif of that novel is Marco Polo, the great traveler who goes all around Kublai Khan's empire and returns and sits at the foot of the emperor and tells him about the cities of his empire. And the trick of the book is all those cities are actually one city. It's the city of Venice. And towards the end of that novel, there's a beautiful vignette about a bridge, which I think absolutely captures what we have to do in a diverse society. Marco Polo is telling Kublai Khan about this bridge, and Kublai Khan stops him and says, I want to know about the brick that holds the bridge together. Marco Polo says, the bridge is held together by an arch. And Kublai Khan says, well, why are you telling me about, about the bricks then? I want to know about the arch. And Marco Polo says, well, without bricks, there is no arch. And what he's getting across is this notion that in a diverse society, in a diverse community like the Twin Cities, how the stones, the constituent communities, the individuals and groups of this broader area are put together just so to create the arch of pluralism. That's the trick. That's the challenge. That's what Putnam talks about in what it means to engage diversity so that it builds social cohesion instead of letting that terrain stay neutral and letting the forces of bigotry and sometimes the forces of bomb making enter. That's the lesson we learn from the city of Jersey City, that they let that terrain stay neutral for too long. They let a leader emerge who was articulating how the stones and communities of that city were flying against each other instead of coming together and being a bridge that allowed people to pass into a new land, a different time, the mountaintop that people like King and Obama talk about. But bridges don't just build themselves. Bridges require bridge builders. Bridges require people who can assemble those stones and those bricks in just the right way. This is what we've been trying to do at the Interfaith Youth Corps for the last decade, is to go around the world and to tell people we need a layer of interfaith leaders, a layer of interfaith bridge builders with the framework, the knowledge base, and the skill set to build religious pluralism so that our cities, our communities, our nations are that much stronger so that we don't fall into the trap of the clash of civilizations. Instead, we're continually building the possibility of pluralism, continually telling that story, continually erecting those bridges. I wanna leave you with a couple of lines, which for me, beautifully articulate the world that we're trying to move into, and also some of the challenges if we don't move into it quickly enough. The first is by one of President Obama's favorite poets, Gwendolyn Brooks, from the part of the world that he and I are both from, Chicago. Gwendolyn Brooks says, we are each other's business. We are each other's harvest. We are each other's magnitude and bond. Finally, I wanna leave you with the lines from William Stafford, great American poet, actually a Native American poet, who writes about both the possibility of pluralism and also the pitfalls if we don't build it strong enough. If you don't take the time to get to know me, and I don't take the time to get to know you, 
then a pattern that others made could prevail in this world. And following the wrong God home, we could miss our star. Those who are awake must be awake now, or else a falling line may lull us back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no or maybe, must be clear now because the darkness around us is deep. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ibu Patel. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is interfaith leader, Dr. Ibu Patel. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to thank the forum's many donors, those in the sanctuary and those listening on the radio, for making today's event possible. This is the final forum in our spring season. We invite you to join us in Westminster Sanctuary for the fall 2009 season, beginning on Thursday, September 17th, and featuring CNN's chief business and finance correspondent, Ali Velshi. Further information on the fall series will be available online in August at eWestminster.org. And now, Ibu Patel, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. From your work with religiously diverse young people, what have you learned about building cooperation and understanding that the U.S. could apply to global relations? Um, what a great question, thank you. Well, I think what the first thing we should be focusing on in America is making more salient just how religiously diverse our society is. It's not yet something that is at the front of enough people's minds. And let me repeat it again. The most religiously diverse society in human history. Nowhere else have more people from more different religious backgrounds gathered in one polity. Right? That's a remarkable opportunity. The most religiously devout in society in the West, which means religion matters in this country. Uh, there are high rates of belief in God. There are relatively high rates of church, synagogue, mosque attendance. Uh, our civil society is, is in large part composed of groups that, were, that are currently faith-based or have their history in a faith community, much like this town hall meeting. This is a wonderful example of that. And we live at a moment of global religious conflict. What we have the opportunity to do in America is to build a model of a nation where people from different religious backgrounds are respecting each other's identity, have relationships across different communities, and have a commitment to the common good. By building that model, we change the story in the world about how different religious communities relate to one another. Too often when I'm traveling abroad, people are saying, you know, we just can't get along with those people. It's better to just stay apart. There are places in America, and there are people in America who believe that as well. We have a chance to change that story. And I think it, you know, this notion of, of inspiring, resourcing, and mobilizing a layer of people who are interfaith bridge builders, I view those bridge builders as the key to doing that. You use the analogy of building bridges over a chasm. Any thoughts on filling in the chasm? <laughs> I have to say that when I think about... Uh, it's, it's, of course, one can take a metaphor in a hundred different directions, right? Um, just read Marquez. <laughs> uh, I don't think about bridges over a chasm. I think about bridges between distinct communities. And, and this will give away the baggage of, of a graduate school background, but uh, I get this term in part from Robert Putnam and how he describes social capital. Social capital, of course, is the levels of trust, 
the rates of voting, the rates of volunteerism, these sorts of things in a city or a nation. And Putnam says there are two types of social capital. There's bonded social capital, which is to say the social capital within a small community, within a mosque or a synagogue or a church or within an African-American group or a Latino group, for example. And then there's bridged social capital, which is the opportunity to multiply social capital when you have mosques and synagogues, churches and temples working together. So I'm, I, don't view, I don't view bridges over a chasm so much as I view bridges as a way to connect communities that are already doing so many good things internally. And the question one can ask is, what more could we be doing together? You know, Putnam, by the way, um, he started something uh, in the late 1990s called the Sohuero Seminars. And the website of that is bettertogether.org. And my friend, Reverend Jim Wallace, who I understand was a speaker here recently, he told me that the least well-known guy in the Sohuero Seminars was a skinny dude from Chicago named Barack Obama. <laughs> uh, but that's... That's Putnam's big focus, is he says, we do really well in America in terms of bonded social capital. And this is a really good thing. It's really good to have amazing things happening at your synagogue or your mosque. But do we have enough stuff happening between those places? And I think that the key to that is a, a set of leaders who can build those bridges between those places, therefore multiplying the social capital. Several questions here about uh, including non-believers in your work. Uh, you explicitly are an interfaith. Is there a place in the conversation or the bridge building for those who have no faith? Absolutely. Uh, I would say you know, at the Interfaith Youth Corps, um, probably 20 or 25% of our staff would describe themselves as non-believers, secular humanists, agnostics, perhaps even atheists. What they're very clear about is, is uh, a couple things. Number one, they also have a tradition. There's a tradition of secular humanism. There are writers in that tradition. There are heroes in that tradition, right? So just as I might draw in a special way from the tradition of Islam as an inspiration, they draw from a tradition of secular humanism. Number two, they have friends who are people of faith, and they don't like seeing Muslims maligned on television. They don't like seeing Jews or Christians maligned in popular culture. And so they have a personal stake in how their friends are treated in a society that is you know, in, in increasingly uh, has certain bigoted views about certain religious communities. Third, they live in the world like the rest of us do, and our world is too often characterized by violence between religious communities. And they believe in peace and in harmony, inspired by their secular humanist tradition, they want to apply that to building bridges between people from different communities. So I have to say I have learned a lot from those people and how they have articulated why they are leaders in this work. And some of the best interfaith bridge builders I know are from the secular humanist tradition. Does an interfaith perspective of the sort you're advocating mean that we may have to ignore aspects of our respective religions that may consider other religions to be false or wrong? What a great question. Uh, so I had a, um, we had a visit at the Interfaith Youth Corps last week from somebody that I have grown to call a friend and admire. His name is Reverend Bob Roberts. He started the Northwood Network of Evangelical Churches in Texas. And we'd been talking on the phone for several months and came up for a day-long visit. And here's what we decided, right? He is unabashed about the notion that he wishes I was a Christian. And I think that there are certain powerful things in Islam that people should perhaps look twice at. But we decided that, number one, that was not the only conversation we were going to have. Right? That although he believes as an evangelical Christian, it is part of his purpose on earth to invite others into the gospel. He also recognizes that there are many ways to relate to human beings and building friendships with them, building business relationships with them, serving them, is, there, there's holiness to that also. The second thing that I wanna point out is there are people who ask me 
quite frequently, you know, does it bother you that there are, there are people who think that you might not be going to heaven because you're a Muslim? My response is, not at all. <laughs> Here's why. Number one, the work of the Interfaith Youth Corps is focused on earth. And there's plenty in Islam and Judaism and Buddhism and evangelical Christianity which says we have to make earth better, right? I mean, in Islam, uh, we are taught that God made us his abd and halifa, his servant and representative, to make earth better. It's a huge part of our purpose. So, and I have to tell you, all the people of faith I know, even very focused evangelical Christians or evangelical Muslims in terms of their desire to convert others, they also believe that we have to make earth a better place and that we can do that better together. So that's the first reason it doesn't bother me that some people think I'm, I'm not going to heaven. The second reason it doesn't bother me, they don't control it anyway. <laughs> so, and, and, nor, and nor do I, and nor do I, right? So I understand in my limited highly imperfect, frail approach as a human being, I'm doing the best I can with what I have, and so are they. Right? Uh, what is the reaction of other Muslims to you and to the kind of open, tolerant uh, approach to interfaith relations that you have? I would, uh, hmm. It has been one of my greatest joys in the last decade of doing this work that it has brought me in touch with what I think are some of the most important Muslim luminaries, at least in the West, which is where most of our work and our travels have been. Uh, people like Sheikh Hamza Youssef out of Zaytuna Institute in California, Dr. Omar Abdullah uh, of the Nawawi Foundation in Chicago, that they believe that this is a powerful part of Islam, and they are thrilled that there is a young Muslim who is out front articulating not only the importance of this for American society, but also how it is inspired by the tradition of Islam. Uh, and these are the people who are my teachers. They're the ones who highlight the dimensions of the tradition that the prophet was sent to be nothing but a special mercy upon all the worlds. They're the ones who tell me different stories uh, in medieval Islam about uh, southern Spain during the 10th and 11th centuries, for example, and the wonderful example of tolerance that that Muslim society working with Jews and Christians built. So not only do I think that Muslims, broadly speaking, in America really believe in what it means to articulate how their Muslim heritage contributes to the common good, and the crucial role of interfaith relations in that effort, but Muslim scholars and leaders are absolutely out front about the importance of this. And, and again, it's one of my greatest honors to be able to be at the table with those people, learning from them, and, and being a part of really uh, helping build what, what they are increasingly calling an American Islam. Let me give you one quick image about this. Dr. Omar Abdullah, uh, who is, you know, perhaps the most senior Muslim scholar in the West, offers this beautiful image that the waters of Islam are so clear and so pure that they absorb the color of the rocks that they flow over. So now the waters of Islam are in America in a way that is dynamic, right? Where you have perhaps the most diverse group of Muslims ever assembled in a single country. And Dr. Omar says, what will it mean to create an American Islam? An Islam that binds together these diverse group of Muslims, Somali, Bosnian, African-American, Syrian, Pakistani, and also contributes to this dynamic country in the early 21st century. I feel like we are, at the Interfaith Youth Corps, we are a part of that project. There is, of course, another side of Islam that is active in America, and we are aware of that here in Minneapolis with uh, recent um, revelations that there are young 
Somali Muslims being recruited for violent extremist acts uh, back in Somalia. Uh, so there is a, an effort to gain a, a toehold here, and there's quite a bit of concern, particularly in our community, about the, the success of those efforts. Any comment on on uh, the attempts of radical extremist Muslims to uh, gain uh, some uh, uh, presence and prominence here in America? Right. Well, I, look, I'll tell you something. I am just as concerned about this as anybody else is, and it's because I'm an American and I'm a Muslim. And I have to tell you something. If you and I were up against the wall and a radical Muslim had a gun with one bullet in it, they wouldn't know who to shoot first, you or me, right? So one of the great myths is that quote unquote mainstream Muslims are light or soft on extremist Muslims. The fact is they are our enemies in a double way because not only do they wanna kill us as they wanna kill everybody else, but they are poisoning the beauty and purity of a tradition. Having said that, and paying attention to this in, in a pretty robust way for, for those reasons precisely, my studies have, have shown that there is no organized pattern of recruitment as far as radical Islam in America goes. No organized pattern. That doesn't mean that there aren't seven kids in a basement somewhere who call themselves Muslim plotting something heinous. I don't know. Right? I mean, I have friends who are part of the FBI in the South who are like, let me tell you, there are seven kids in basements calling themselves lots of different things. Muslims, Christians, white supremacists, black nationalists, whatever it might be, plotting heinous things. But as far as I can tell, <clears throat> there is no national organized network of this. I think one of the things <clears throat> for us to pay some attention to is when something terrible happens, do we view it as, what do we view it as illustrative of? In other words, when Eric Rudolph bombed the Atlanta Olympics in 1996 and <clears throat> used the New Testament during his arraignment to justify his act, I didn't look at that and say that's illustrative of Christianity in the South. I said, that's an extremist for you. If there are a handful of young Somali Muslims who are traveling back to their country from the Twin Cities, I don't view that as illustrative of Islam in America. I view that as the story of a set of lost souls who became extremists. What do we view, the, what do we view things as illustrative of? There's a great line in the work of Charles Simic, who is a recent poet laureate, who said, the violent people of all traditions belong to one tradition, the tradition of violence. Okay. So one of the things I would caution people about is just, is, is when we view extremism, let's not honor extremism with the title Christian or Jewish or Muslim or secular. Let's just call it extremism. <clears throat> Can you comment on the sorts of influences you've had in your life from Muslim teachers perhaps or from others who are not Muslims as you've grown up to become the person you are today? Uh, sure. Actually, this is 187 pages or so of book about this that's, I think, available right around those, these corners. Um, that was a setup for you, by the thank way. Thank you. That's I right. appreciate yeah. that. You keep on. That's a fastball in the strike zone. So, um, so I, let me, I will say something about... <clears throat> about one person. Um, I actually did a recent commencement address about this, this mentor of mine. Uh, his name is Brother Wayne Teasdale. It's a big part of the book that I, I wrote also. And you know, Brother Wayne, uh, I met him about 10 years ago at the, at the piano recital of a high school friend. And he came up to me during the reception of that recital and he said, music is our gateway into the interspiritual age. I'd never met this guy before. This was not how I was accustomed to conversations beginning. <laughs> but I was, I was intrigued. I was 21 or 22 years old, and I was deeply intrigued by this guy saying this. And so he says to me, you know, I'm a Catholic monk, and I'm a professor of religion, and let's talk about this more. So I went down to his 
uh, uh, to Hyde Park, and we would take long walks together. And Brother Wayne and I, you know, we would walk by Catholic Theological Union and walk by the University of Chicago. Brother Wayne would see a dog, and he would stop, and he would pet the dog, and he would look up at me and say, that is a very spiritual dog. <laughs> and then Brother Wayne once said to me, you should start an interfaith youth movement. You are a very spiritual person. And I thought to myself, well, you showed such good judgment about dogs. I mean, <laughs> that, that doesn't sound like such a bad idea. So it was really under the, the tutelage of this person that I began this crazy dream at 21 or 22 of what would it look like at a time of a youth bulge and a religious revival and increased interaction of people of different religious backgrounds to build an interfaith youth movement. And one day I told Brother Wayne, you know, what if we focused on young people as leaders of interfaith service projects and we trained them to do that? And what if we trained them all over the country and the world and then we built a network of those people and said, you know, you're interfaith leaders, just like there are networks of environmentalists or networks of human rights activists. What if we have a network of 22 and 23 and 24 year olds calling themselves interfaith leaders? And Brother Wayne says to me, the Dalai Lama has to hear about this. And I'm like, all right, you are totally off your rocker. Three months later, I'm sitting in front of the Dalai Lama and I'm telling him about the Interfaith Youth Corps. And a year later, I'm helping lead the youth program at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Cape Town, South Africa. And a year after that, I'm helping lead an Interfaith Habitat for Humanity build in India. And we're helping lead an Interfaith project in Sri Lanka. Keep on doing this. And a couple years later, I get a book in the mail and somebody says, you know, I wrote about your work. I flip to the index, I find my name. I look at that chapter and it says, the Interfaith Youth Corps is building a global interfaith youth movement. I showed it to Brother Wayne and he said, see, I told you it would come true. <laughs> and so my, my advice to this set of graduates was, you need somebody a little crazy in your life. <laughs> I had Brother Wayne and that's where we dreamed this dream of a movement of young people being interfaith bridge builders, building religious pluralism. I wonder what your dream will result in. I wonder what movements you're gonna be building. So Brother Wayne was a, was a huge influence on me uh, and he's just you know one of, one of the people who kind of shaped us along this path. And I have to say this is exactly what we're trying to do at the Interfaith Youth Corps. We're trying to bring this message to people all over the world, but especially 19, 20, 21 year olds and put in their minds, you need to be an interfaith leader. You need the framework and the knowledge base and the skill set to bring people from different religious backgrounds together. You know, we're trying to, you know, with, without the spiritual dog part, play the Brother Wayne role for a generation of young people, and put this, you know, what, what Rumi calls this huge, foolish project like Noah in a generation's minds. Thank you, Ibu Patel. Thank you. Thank you.